You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We're in the book of Joshua, which is an amazing Old Testament book. If you're just joining us, we're, we're just started a couple weeks ago, and today we're in chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And we jump right into the middle of this story. Uh, it's the story of Rahab, and we'll get more into, into who she is and what she did, but uh, she hides a couple spies, uh, of Israelite spies that come into Jericho, and we find ourselves just right in the middle of this story. It's high energy, it's tense, it's, um, it's pretty great. So we're going to start in verse 8, Joshua chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Let's go to God's word. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of the Lord has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. This is God's word. Lots happen, a lot happens in Joshua 2. Joshua 2 is like a sandwich here. It's written like a sandwich. The beginning and end of the chapter are kind of like these pieces of bread that hold it together and kind of capsulate it. Then there's some extra details in the story, uh, some things that give the story volume, but don't really have a ton of substance. Those are like the lettuce and cheese and tomato. But we all know the best part of a sandwich, the most expensive part of the sandwich, the, the, the part of the sandwich that really fills us up. That's the meat of the sandwich. And the meat of Joshua 2 is verse 8 to 14. This is where we see the confession of Rahab, the confession of this woman that, that provides this meat of this story. Rahab is, here's how the story of Rahab goes real briefly if you don't know it. God has given Joshua, the leader of the Israelites, he has given them divine assurance that wherever he puts his foot on this new land, he will give to them. That they will go into this fortified city, this fortified city will crumble, will become theirs, and they will take the land, but he hasn't given any instruction for how that will happen, not yet. And so he's a, like a good general that he is. He sends out two spies into the land on this reconnaissance mission. And the king of Jericho finds out that these two spies are in his land. He sends capital police to Rahab. And he says, we know you know where these men are. We know that you have seen them. Tell us where, you, where they are. And she says, oh man, you just missed them. They just went out and they went that way. But of course she has hidden them in her house and she has kept them hidden to keep them safe, to save them. And so the, the, the king sends his guards in the, in the opposite direction 
of where they really are. And they sends them on this three day journey to give these Israelite spies time to check out the city, to get back home and to get back to safety. And this is the story that provides this context for great moral controversy. And that is this, is it ever okay to lie? Rahab lies, she saves God's people. Rahab lies, she saves her own life. And the writer, here's what our passage says about this controversy, absolutely nothing. The writer doesn't care, doesn't even spend a minute on it, is not concerned with this moral dilemma that we often see in this passage, because that is not what this passage is about. That's not the meat of this story. We get distracted by Rahab's lie, and we miss the meat of the passage, which is Rahab's confession. It is her faith. It is how God has changed her life and her story. Her confession is the greater message for us. Rahab is mentioned in the New Testament three, more, three other times. In prominent ways, she is mentioned in the New Testament. And each and every time, not a single writer talks about her lie, but every single one talks about her confession. Her confession of faith. Her confession acts as a framework for our confession. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to give a confession of faith? When we are confessing to be Christians and to know and follow God, what is it that we are confessing? That is the greater message in this passage. And I'll tell you, it looks a lot like Rahab's confession. A faithful confession of our belief in God and trust in him is gonna look a lot like Rahab's confession. The content of her confession becomes a framework for us and takes center stage in this high drama story in Joshua chapter two. Why, why is confession important? Why is it important to confess faith in God? Because her confession saves her life. Her confession saves her. Her confession, her, her life depends on it. It is a matter of life and death. And Roman 10, nine says this, if we confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Her confession of faith saves her. Our confession of faith saves us. And so we look at the content of her confession, this meat of this passage, to learn about what it means to confess our own faith and what needs to be present there. Her confession includes this. It is about confessing the mighty work of God confessing the supremacy of God and confessing the mercy of God. Let's look first at confessing the mighty works of God. Here's what Rahab says in verse 10. She says, for we heard that the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt. The basis of Rahab's faith is that she heard about what God had done a long time ago. She heard about his mighty acts. I mean, this was something so amazing that you couldn't, you couldn't miss this story. We heard about you. You were enslaved, a people enslaved for 400 years in a land that was not your own by the greatest nation and army that had, that was, uh, that had existed up to that point. And God rescued you against all odds. And you walked on dry land through the sea. And then that sea closed in on, on Pharaoh's armies and you were saved. She heard about what God did in the past. And this information gave evidence of his power, of his mighty work. And that was enough to 
to draw out a confession. I heard about your God and what he did in his mighty and powerful acts. This is the basis of her faith, what God did. I'll never forget one of the most powerful scenes for me in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is when Indiana Jones is standing on the edge of this clip, uh, cliff. If we could have a picture of that, don't we? He's standing on the edge of this cliff and he needs to get from where he is to the other side. And there's this huge chasm in between. And he needs to get to the other side because he has to save his father. He has to get to the, you know, the, the fountain of youth, the Holy Grail, and the chalice that Jesus drank from, right? And he just needs to do what? He needs to take a step of faith. He needs to take this blind leap of faith. And so he reaches out his leg and he steps into this abyss and his foot catches this invisible platform because he believed and he walks across to safety. It is powerful scene, but this is not what biblical faith is, right? This is a baseless faith. This is a faith that is not in anything of substance. It is just believing. God never asks you, just believe just trust. Just go out and believe in me. And Rahab's confession is not a blind faith. Her faith is rooted in the knowledge of God's mighty work. She heard about what he did. She heard about what he was like. She heard about his power and the mighty work to save his people. I will say there are times where you and I will need to trust God with limited information. We won't have the whole picture, and that's usually how it is. But it is never done blindly. Following God is never done blindly. He never asks us to take a blind leap. He is always telling us who he is. He's always telling us what he has done. God is a storytelling God, always telling of the story of what he has done to save his people. Most famously in his rescue of his people from slavery in Egypt. And it has become notorious throughout the whole land. People are hearing about this thing. We've heard about your God and what he has done. Confessing our faith in God is always done on the basis of what he's told us about himself. Faith is, is not just a, a warm, cozy feeling about, faith, about God. Faith grows, if at all, out of hearing what God has done for his people. And if you're wondering, I guess you need to have a stronger faith and, and you're wanting just to, to try to muster up this emotional expression, this emotional feeling, a feeling of comfort and courage just in God generally, then you're probably aiming for the wrong thing. God has shown us who he is and what he has done and we focus our eyes and our hearts on, on what he's told us. His mighty work, his mighty power. There is nothing about Rahab's confession that feels warm and cozy and her knowledge of God is, is not something soft and powerless. If anything, she tells us that she knows about how powerful he is and about how dangerous he is. In verse 11, as soon as we heard it, she says, as soon as we heard about what God did, our hearts melted. And that, that doesn't mean like romantically, right? That's like, we, we just, we melted. It's, and there was no spirit left in any man. 
because of you, because of your God. Confessing faith is far more than just being a, a hope for something in the future to happen. Our faith in God is not just hoping that he will do something in the future that will bless us. Our faith in God is rooted in what God has already done in the past. And Rahab sees it. Rahab sees it. She says, she says this, I know that the Lord has already given you Jericho. This is incredible. It's so weird. Jericho is still standing. Jericho has had no word or they have no reason to believe that their city is about to fall and to, to crumble literally to the ground. Every brick, the, we'll learn that not even a single brick is laid upon another brick. It is just decimated. They have no idea this is happening. The only thing that's happened is two spies have come over that Rahab is now, uh, now she has met. How does Rahab know? that God has given the city of Jericho into their hands and it will soon be destroyed. She doesn't know what God will do. She is not a fortune teller. No, she knows the character of God because she knows what God has already done. And she knows that God had loves his people, that he protects them, that he does what he says, that he has promised to do things for them and he will never go back on a single promise. It reveals the character of God. And so Rahab knows God took care of you then. He's gonna take care of you now. And if you're standing before me right now in this city to scope it out, and if God's promised to give you the city, then it's already yours. He's going to do it. It's just a matter of how and when. When we confess faith in God, we base our faith not on this empty hope that he might do something in the future, to bless us, but in the evidence of his character demonstrated through his past mighty works. God is always telling us to look at what he has done for how we are to have confidence in what he will do in the future. And Rahab confesses these mighty works and it stirs in her of a genuine faith that God will do everything he says he will do, so much so that she says, if you're standing before me right now, then Jericho is already yours and there's nothing we can do about it. Not only is, is Rahab acknowledging the mighty work of God in the past, she's also acknowledging something that's quite spectacular for a pagan city, a pagan woman within this pagan city. She confesses the supremacy of God. This is the second part of her confession in this framework of a, of a true confession, confessing the supremacy of God. The second part of verse 11 says this, for the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. For, for Rahab, in her mind, there is nowhere where God is not God, including Jericho. There is nowhere where God is not God. She does not view God as a one God among many other gods or a God of the Israelites only or a God uh, who only operates within certain boundaries and certain people groups or certain cultures. She seems to recognize that there's something different about God, the God of the Israelites, that he is supreme over all heaven and earth, that the only, he is the only God who is functioning in a, in a certain way among creation that is, has a supreme authority over everything. She confesses that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses 
And now Joshua is the only true God to whom all influences and power must give an account. She's never met him. She knows very little about him, but she is confessing he is God over all heaven and earth. And she knows that you can debate that. You can debate whether or not you're gonna follow God. You can debate your response to God. You can debate his, uh, his, if you like his personality or if you agree with his commands, but there's one thing that you cannot debate about God. You cannot debate his authority for his supremacy and authority has been proven by his mighty works and what he has revealed, his influence of power over all of the earth. We have an ongoing friendly dispute in our home, sometimes not so friendly. And the dispute is about, it really centers on this primary question. And here's the question, is Taylor Swift an incredible singer? right? Is Taylor Swift an incredible singer? No. Now, each morning, our kids, we drive them to school. They have a playlist. They get to play DJ. Each kid gets to play DJ different days, and they have their own playlist, and they play it on. And one particular middle child of ours is a, just T-Swift all morning, right? And the, but there, there are shouts from the back. You heard them already this morning. There are shouts from the back seat that cry, Taylor Swift is horrible. She's a horrible singer. Crucify her. You know, like, and here's my question. What do you do with that kind of, like, you know, rebellious heart? What do you do with that kind of apostasy in your own family? Now, here's the thing. Taylor Swift has 212 songs that have charted in the top 100, most out of any female singer ever. She has 40, she has uh, the most top 40 songs that have ever been sung by a female artist, the most top 10 songs out of any female. She has the most number one debut songs out of any female ever. And she has the, she has, she's actually, um, there's only two artists who have, have more number one albums that have ever been created. And one of those artists is the Beatles. Okay. The other is Jay-Z. I don't know, I don't know Jay-Z song. Okay. Um, <laughs> Now, here's my point. Uh, you don't have to like her. You don't have to sing along with her. You don't have to think that she is uh, special. You don't have to love her music and tell people about her. But, it is, but you cannot say she's a bad singer, okay? There's never been anyone who is better. This is, if you take away anything from this sermon today, listen to this, okay? There, you, you do not have to be a T-Swift fan, but you are not living in reality if you say she's a bad singer. We're clear on this. Okay. Okay, back to Rahab. Listen, so <laughs> why is this aspect of her confession of faith so important to see for her, for us? She knows that you do not have to agree with God's actions. You don't have to be on board with him. You don't have to understand his ways or his plans or his character, but by his own evidence and by his own mighty works, we have no freedom to say that he is not supremely sovereign and authoritative over all heaven and earth. You don't have to agree with him, but we don't get to decide if he is supreme in his authority. And when you come before a God like that, you are faced with two 
options and Rahab knows it. When you are in front of the undisputed power and majesty of the universe, you either can fight against his purposes, be filled with fear, just wait for his judgment, which many will do. Or you confess the reality of who he is, acknowledge what he has done that is plain to see, and then cry out for his mercy, hoping that you will receive it. Those are the only two options that we have when we are faced with the God who has revealed himself to us as the creator and judge of all. And that is why Jericho is just struck with fear. Their hearts melt, their faces melt off, their, they are, their spirit has left them because they know that judgment is coming and they don't know where to turn. But Rahab does. And she cries out for mercy. And this is the third and most important part of this framework of real confession. It is confessing the mercy of God. True confession of faith in God is incomplete if there's only knowledge of what he has done and only belief in his authority and supremacy. We must go beyond that and we must acknowledge that we need his rescue and we are hopeless without it. We need his mercy and we are hopeless without it. She could say, I've heard about your God. He really takes care of you. We've heard the stories. We have heard the amazing miracles. Why wow, your God is so powerful. He rescues you from your enemies and it is clear that there is no God apart from your God. Well, see you later, have a great day. She could say that, but she realizes that as God is going to save you and he is going to keep you in his care, how can I get in on that? Is it even possible? Now she realizes, she realizes that judgment is coming. She realizes that God's people are there. These spies are there to bring the judgment of God to them. And more than just recognizing the reality of it, she cries out for mercy. She cries out for salvation. And she says, swear to me by the Lord, which means, would you go to God on my behalf? Would you make this promise that you will go to your God and that I would, be, that I would receive mercy and that I would be spared of this judgment by any means possible? She doesn't know how. She just knows that God is capable. And maybe, maybe he will be willing to save a sinner like her. Rahab must not only be convinced of the true, the, the, you know, the truth of God, the clear truth of God, but she must escape the coming judgment that is going to befall Jericho. And she knows that. And genuine faith is not simply content in knowing about God, but in taking refuge in God. Rahab's confession is not only a matter of correct belief, but of desperate need. Rahab's story is the story of the powerful, mighty, supreme, and merciful God who loves to save sinners. And that is who Rahab is, a sinner. Every time Rahab is mentioned in the Bible, we know exactly who she is and what she has done. Rahab is a prostitute. 
maybe even a sacred, what they would call a sacred prostitute who served in the public fertility shrines in Jericho. We know that her house is on the edge of the city in the wall. Everyone who would come into that city would know Rahab. The king of Jericho knows Rahab. The king's army's men know Rahab. They know her. They know what she does. They've probably been clients. And yet she is honored in the New Testament as a member of Jesus's genealogy. Not because she's good, not because she was holy, but because she recognized her desperate need and cried out for mercy and God loves to give it. If I, if I gave you the problem of Jericho to solve, if we are on the banks of the Jordan and we're with Joshua and his, and his army and we're brainstorming, okay, God has given us this land, but he hasn't really given us a blueprint for how to take this land. And you, what, what options would come up? Uh, probably a lot. And, and if I gave you this problem to solve, you would never choose this one as a solution. You would never choose to solve it with it. Hey, how about we go in and find the first prostitute we find and ask her to help us. There's this lady in there, Rahab. Don't ask me how I know she's in there, but let's just say we're gonna go into Jericho. You wouldn't think like that. Why? Because this is not how we would solve it. We would, go to, we would try to build alliances with, with, with strong people, with valuable people. We would try to, to get people on our side and to build allies. But this is how God does it. Why? Because we're not saved by our intellect. We're not saved by our might. We're not saved by the strength of our character. We are saved by the grace and mercy of God. Apart from which the judgment of God continues to hang on us. God loves to save sinners. And nowhere do we see this reality and character of God and work of God more clearly on display than at the cross of Jesus. We see no mightier work of God in all of the world than his work to take the sinner's guilt, place it on his sinless son, to crucify his son and have him die and buried and then to raise him from the grave. We are told that Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God and character of God, that he is the visible expression of the invisible God by whom and through whom and for whom all of creation was made and that he governs and sustains all of the universe. It comes through the power of Christ's word. He is supreme. Jesus is supreme in all heaven and earth. And then at one particular dinner party where Jesus was having a meal with notable sinners in the city, he said this in Matthew 9, to these sinners, he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came to call the, not the righteous, but the sinner. I didn't come so you can give me a sacrifice. What does that mean? I didn't come so that you can give me something of value so that I would love you. I came to give you mercy. This is what my heart desires. We are rescued from our sins the same way that Rahab was rescued from hers. Not in correct belief, but in a desperate need.
We are saved the same way she is because in her desperate need, she cried out to God for help and he gave it. A desperate need that recognized a mighty God who was willing to save even someone like her. It is God's delight to save sinners by offering his own son, Jesus, to die in our place. No one is too far gone. No one is too far out of reach. No challenge is beyond God's ability to intervene and to bring about his rescue. No one would think of this plan, but God is delighted to use people like this. This story of Rahab, it is a call to us to have confidence in the mercy of God through the saving acts of Jesus Christ for sinners. It is a call to pray for and expect God to do mighty acts works in our life, even, even beyond our own imagination, in order to fulfill his promises in our life. How will he bring about the good that he has promised? We don't know the details, but we know what he has done, and we know that he has never failed us. It is a call to pray for and expect God to work in the lives of people that we would label sinners and too far gone. These could be family members, it could be coworkers, it could be neighbors and friends, classmates. And it, it is a call to us to never feel that we are ever morally superior to anyone. For God is rescuing Rahab and he's rescuing Rahab's family and he is calling everyone whoever wants it to take refuge under the mercy of his sacrificial death of his son, Jesus. To come and find mercy if you are feeling the judgment of God for your sin, there is refuge in his mercy. He loves to save sinners. And when we recognize what he has done for us in his mighty work, most prominently in Jesus Christ on the cross. We are told in scripture that if he did that, if he gave his son, why would he withhold anything from those he loves? He tells us over and over again that we don't have permission to decide for ourselves who he is. He says, I'll tell you who I am. There's no one like me. And all throughout the Bible, the whole Bible is a story about who God is, what he has done, and his character that's demonstrated in his mighty work. And he says, this is what I'm like, and I'm not gonna change. This is what I've done, and I'm not gonna change. This is who I am, and I'm not gonna change. He's like, I'm not like you, I'm not gonna change. And he says that to us still now. Here's what I've done, and I'm not going to change. And so we can either come under his judgment in fear of his might and majesty, or we can cry out for his mercy, and he is delighted to give it. Let's be like Rahab. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.